Our Father, we come before you standing amazed at who you are and who your Son is and your Spirit. Father, quiet our hearts. We ask you right now by your Spirit to lead us into truth. Help us to be attentive. Help us to see things in our lives that need to change. Give us, by your Spirit, the desire to change. Open our eyes to see Jesus for those here who don't know him. By your Spirit, do a work of grace. Father, I'm dependent upon you to deliver this word. Help me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the summer of 2003, up in Nova Scotia, three teenagers decided to steal a boat. Where they got that idea? Came from the depths of their sinful nature. So they took the boat out on the water, riding it up and down the river, and they pulled it over to the side and docked it. And there they found some liquor and they drank that, had a great time, went on down the river, found a camp, broke into the camp, took some things. And after this riotous run of activity, they decided to beach the boat on a nearby shore. And in order to cover up what they had done, they decided to burn the boat. So one, one teenager held the boat, the other poured gas in it, the other one lit the match, and up go the flames, up go the smoke. And then they realize that they're on an island and there's no way of escape. And someone sees the smoke, calls the police, the police come and arrest them. This is our lives. We, in our own sinfulness, make our choices and do things we shouldn't do. And then we finally come to our senses and go, oh my goodness, why did I do this? And we, find, we try to either bury our sin, we try to burn it up, we try to do something to cover it up. But just like these three lads, there is no escape. This morning we're looking at our God is an inescapable God. There is no getting away from God. Your sin will find you out and you will have to face him at some point in your life. He's an awesome God. He's an inescapable God, not allowing you to keep your sin covered, but bringing you to repentance and reconciliation. That's what we're going to see here in Genesis 44. Joseph's brothers have committed a horrible sin against him 22 years ago. And over the last year and a half, as Joseph has seen them come and go in Egypt, he has begun to deal with them. And in Genesis 24, he's going to give them the final test to see who they are and to draw them to repentance and to reconciliation. He's already been busy at the fact. Remember when they first came back in Genesis 42? That he, he, he accused them of being spies. He was going to put all, of them in, put all of them in prison. He then decided, first he was going to keep them all there except for one to go back and take food. Then he changed his mind and kept one back, which was Simeon, and sent the rest back with food for their families. And then he demanded that Benjamin come. So he's been already testing these brothers to see what is there. But now the question for Joseph is, how are they going to treat Benjamin? Benjamin's the favored one. And if you remember in 43, they held this, he held this banquet, this feast. And Benjamin got five times as much food as everybody else did. There was a reason for that. It was to honor Benjamin and it was to test the brothers. How do they handle Benjamin when he is the favored one? We're going to look at the final examination, which I call Dotham Deja Vu. This test of Joseph's 
is to cause them to reflect back on what happened with him at Dotham. What is deja vu? It's that feeling of having already experienced a present situation. We've all had that, haven't we? We're in a situation going, I've been here before and this is getting ready to happen and I can't believe this is happening. So Joseph is setting up a Dotham deja vu for his brothers. Now when you think of deja vu, you kind of think about Yogi Berra. And remember Yogi Berra's statement, it's deja vu all over again. What he meant by that was every time Mickey Mantle and uh, Roger Maris got up and hit back-to-back home runs back in the 1960s, he would always say it's deja vu all over again because they were constantly always doing the back-to-back home runs. Some of his other great quotes, which were always mangled and twisted and turned, was one, I really didn't say everything I said commenting about baseball, 90% of the game is half mental. Talking about a restaurant that he wouldn't go to anymore, he said, nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. And we've all heard, it ain't over till it's over, referring to the 1973 uh, series when the Mets were nine and a half games back of the Chicago Cubs and they ended up winning the pennant that year. When giving directions to Joe DiMaggio, we've all heard this one before, uh, to his New Jersey home, which had access in two, two routes. He says, when you get to the fork in the road, take it. And his last two great quotes, you can observe a lot by watching. And finally, something we all need to remember Always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't go to yours. (laughs) There were four college sophomores in chemistry. They were good friends. They were good students. They lived off campus. And the night before their final exam, they, instead of studying, decided to go out and party till late in the night. In In the morning, they woke up and much to their shock, they had overslept and missed the final exam. During the day, they found the professor, ran him down, and explained to the professor that the reason they had missed the test is because they had a flat tire and they didn't have a spare. The professor thought about it, thought about it, said, okay, we'll give you a test, the test tomorrow. They were all elated, they were all relieved, they went home, they studied as hard as they could that night. They came in the next day for the test, And the professor gave each of them a booklet, a test booklet, and put them in four separate rooms. They all sat down to take their test. They opened the booklet to the first page. Five points. I love that. Don't you when they tell you how many points each question is? It's always helpful, isn't it? Five points. And we had a simple question about the chemical elements. They all thought, wow, this is going to be so easy. They get that question. They go to the next question. 95 points, which tire? (laughs) Joseph is asking the question in 44, which tire? Are you really men who are honest? Remember in 42, they said, we're honest men. And they're going to declare in this passage, we're honest men. And Joseph is going to test them in that and to see, are you really honest men? Are we going to really get down to the life that you've lived for all these years and all the sin that you've attempted to cover up? Are we ever going to get that out? And so he goes about doing that. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. So then, remember, they had the party the night before. They had all, they had drank and they had eaten and they had a wonderful time together. And Joseph commanded the steward to fill their sacks with food to put the silver back in their bag and to put the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And the steward did just as Joseph had told him. And as soon as the morning was lit, the men were set away with their donkeys. Can you imagine? You're on your donkey. Everything's loaded down. You're leaving Egypt. 
I mean, just think about it. We've got Benjamin with us. We've got Simeon with us. We're all together. We have our donkeys intact. We've got plenty of food for the family. They don't believe we're spies anymore. We had this great party last night. Not real sure about why we all got seated in birth order. And not really sure why we had the party in the first place. And, but we're going to be home in three or four weeks. We're going to see our families. Jacob's going to be overjoyed that we made it back and we've got Benjamin and Judah's going to be the man because he promised to bring him back and he did. Life can't get much better than this. What, what could possibly go wrong? And all of a sudden, they hear sirens. They look in their rearview mirror of their camel. They see the red lights flashing and they're getting pulled over to the side and there's the steward. And what does he say? Why did you choose to repay evil with good? Look at their response. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. In other words, we we didn't do this. Did they do this? No. They hadn't stolen the silver cup. They were innocent in this situation. Were they innocent? No, they weren't. Remember their their comments in 42. They said on multiple occasions, we are honest men. Were they honest men? No, they weren't. They had a life of sin back a long way. And God was going to bring it completely out and bring them to repentance and reconciliation. Do we ever do that? Do we ever see somebody in sin and go, I can't believe they did that? In other words, I would never do that. John Owen says, sin is waiting right at our elbow. Is this not true? How many times have we seen someone do something, we've condemned them for it, and before we could even turn around, we did the exact same thing? Remember in Genesis 4 when God's talking to Cain, and he says, sin is crouching at the door, it desires, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. The scripture is clear that these brothers were not innocent men, and we are not innocent men. We are not honest men because we have a sin nature from the fall. No, they hadn't taken the silver cup. They had stolen Jacob's favorite son. That's a little bit bigger deal than stealing a silver cup. Let's have a Dothan flashback. Remember, Joseph was coming a long way off. They decided they wanted to kill him. When he got there, they stripped him of his robe. They threw him into a cistern, probably somewhere between 15 and 20 foot deep. He's yelling and crying out, asking for help. Get me out of here. They sit down and have a meal. And then the caravan comes along and they decide to sell him. And amidst his screams and pleading to be let go, they watch him go off to Egypt. This is who these men are. And they go home with a straight face and a bloody coat and tell Jacob he was destroyed by wild animals and watch their dad for months mourn over the grief of the loss of Joseph. And that's, that's not even the pinnacle of all they did. Remember Reuben, who slept with his father's concubine. Remember Judah's Hall of Fame passage in, verse, in chapter 38. And all the things that he did from marrying a Canaanite woman and having two wicked sons that, he had to have, that the Lord put to death and then sleeping with his, his, daughter, his daughter-in-law. And he was the one who decided that we'll sell He's the one that came up with the idea of having Joseph sold into slavery. And then we can't forget Simeon and Levi, the two choir boys, 
who deceive an entire city into being circumcised, and while the men are incapacitated, strap on the sword and slaughter everyone in the city. These men had lived a reckless life for years and years and years, and they had lied and covered it and lied and covered it. And through the instrument of Joseph, God is going to pull back the covers for them to see their own sin. Notice in this passage, they are so confident that they didn't do this, that they make a reckless oath. Whoever has the silver cup, may he die. And the rest of us, make us your slaves. Remember Reuben's reckless statement to Jacob? Let me take care of your son, Benjamin, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons. Great, great idea, Reuben. Where did you get that from? Notice what the steward said. That's a great idea, and then he switches it, doesn't he? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And the servant said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant. And the rest of you shall be innocent. So Joseph has set up the scenario now to revisit Dotham. And here it is. Benjamin's the guilty one. All the rest of you are free to go. All you have to do is get on your donkeys with your food, head back to your family. Benjamin goes into Egypt and becomes a slave. And you can tell your dad very simply, guess what, dad? We had no way of knowing Benjamin was going to steal a silver cup. Problem, wasn't it? We did the best we could. We did the very best we could. That's exactly what they did to Joseph, didn't they? They did repay evil for good. They went back to the father, made up a whopper, told their dad the story, and went on. Let's see how they handled this, this first test, this test of support and love. Genesis 44, 12 and 13. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Wow, that's a change. They did what? They tore their clothes. They all got their donkeys reloaded, and they headed back into town. What a difference. The last time they sold their brother, they put some silver in their pockets, They produced a bloody coat, and the only person who tore their clothes was who? Jacob. This was their opportunity to be free. They could just leave Benjamin and go go home. They didn't. They passed the test of support. They were going to support Benjamin. Even though Benjamin was favored by his dad, favored by the, the governor of Egypt, They were willing to support him. They return to Egypt and they fall to the ground. All through these last three chapters, Joseph has been reminding them of what happened in Dotham. Silver, everywhere we turn. Every time you open a bag, there's silver. Silver cup. Why silver? Because they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Every time they saw the silver bag with the silver in it, it reminded them of silver from 22 years ago. The steward accuses them of stealing something precious. They didn't this time, but they had before. The steward searching through the bags in birth order. Can you just imagine that? Here they are. He's going from the oldest to the youngest in birth order, looking through the bags. And they know what God did not forget. God saw what they did and he's searching. He's looking. Your life is laid bare 
before a holy God who sees. In, in Dotham Deja Vu, Benjamin now is the innocent victim, isn't he? He didn't steal the silver cup, but now he's being charged. The same way Joseph was the innocent who was also proved to be guilty. In this test, they are powerless. They have no power to set themselves free from this situation. They have this famine that God has orchestrated that's forced every person in that region to have to go to one man to get their food. One man, Joseph. And no matter how careful they are and how small the portions they use in their food and they eat, they're going to have to go there again and again. There's only one Savior, Joseph. And so even when they went away, they had to come again. And they had to see him. And Joseph said, if you don't bring your younger brother, you're not going to get any food. God is able to completely orchestrate things to where people have to deal with their sin. These brothers, it was time. God is patient. 22 years is a long time. Wouldn't we say? And yet when he's ready, he can bring all the pieces together and bring you face to face with your sin. As they're powerless in this situation, they're reminded somebody else was powerless 22 years ago. Joseph was powerless. He was overwhelmed by his brothers, thrown in the cistern, tied up, sent off to Egypt. He, had, he was hopeless and helpless, except God was with him. And every time they bow before the governor, there's this little dream they remember back in their mind that Joseph told them about where they would be bowing down. To which they said, oh, we'll never do that. So we have the test of support. So far they're passing that test. They didn't take the easy road off to head back to Canaan. Now we have the test of repentance. Are we going to really come to the point where we see our sin. That's really the issue. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 is, I think, one of the most clear pictures of what brokenness and repentance is. It's hard to define those things, isn't it? Repentance and brokenness. Look at verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? So they've, they've come in. Joseph has told them he can find out things by divination. I don't believe Joseph was using divination. Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams. But to keep up the facade, he used that terminology, I believe. And he knew these brothers inside and out. So he kept up the facade. They fall before him. And Judah opens his mouth to speak. What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are your Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. What are they saying here? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Are they saying they were guilty for stealing the silver cup? No. They're saying God has shown us our iniquity. God has shown us our sin. We've been trucking along for 20, 30 years, piling up the sin and God has shown us this. And we have no defense. We have no rationalization. Judah could have come in and said, listen, let me explain exactly how this happened. There's no way that I took the silver cup. There's no way Reuben took the silver cup. We could have this great defense. There is no defense. The brothers, there's no one said, oh, I have a word to say over here. I, I think I'm innocent here. 
Judah speaks for the group. They have no defense because they see the wickedness of their hearts. God has used this final test by Joseph to bring them to the point of seeing the wickedness of their heart. They have no defense. They deserve whatever this man chooses to do to them. This is the posture of repentance. In our country, in the attempt to bring as many people into the kingdom of God as we can, we have had the tendency to water down the gospel and to tell people, if you'll do X, Y, or Z, you get to go to heaven. You get a free ticket. The problem is, without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. And God will promise you blessing if you just pray this prayer. Now, praying a prayer, if it comes from a heart like this, where you are undone and you have no defense, and you acknowledge your sin before God, and you're crying out for help, that will bring salvation. But just to pray a prayer for praying a prayer's sake without a heart of repentance leads to false assurance of salvation. And our churches are full of people who they remember they prayed a prayer. They've never had this experience where they're laying straight out before God going, I've got no defense. I've got no excuse. I see my wickedness as clear as day. I deserve whatever you want to do to me. That's where these brothers were with Joseph. They weren't going to argue about the silver cup because the sin they had done is mountains higher than taking the silver cup. And they knew they deserved whatever this man, who they didn't know, would dictate. Have you ever been falsely accused? kind of a painful thing, isn't it? And you know, we can spend a lot of our time defending ourselves and explaining how that's not the case. However, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a place to defend your name against a false accusation, but when that happens, have you ever in your mind said, that is so wrong You missed me. Did you see the big elephant over here of my sin? You know, you didn't say hi to me or whatever the issue is. Oh, no, that's, you know, but you don't know the sin I do have. That's what these brothers were saying. They didn't even argue the silver cup thing. They said, God has shown us we're undone. Notice what Joseph says. Far be it from me that I should do so. I'm not going to keep all you guys slaves. That wouldn't be right. Only the man in whose hand has the silver cup. That's the person I'm going to keep as servant. In other words, we're going to try it again. Everybody gets to go free except for Benjamin. Let's try that again. You want to, you want to go home? They didn't bite. They were really prostrate before him. Now notice, in 18 through 34, Judah steps up to the plate. Judah, whose record was horrible as far as his life, he steps up and he begins to explain to Joseph 
all that happened and how Jacob so loved Benjamin and how even taking Benjamin from Jacob would have brought him into despair and to death. And he pleads Benjamin's case to Joseph. He pleads about his father and how he didn't want to see his father die or be in any more pain. He shows concern for Benjamin, for his father. And we get to 44, 32 through 34. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. I promised my dad I'd bring him back. If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before, before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. I will take their place. I will be the one to take the place of Benjamin and the rest of the brothers. I will, I will be the one to do this. I made a promise to my father that I would be a pledge of safety. And I cannot bear to go back to my father without Benjamin. For how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Had no problem with the evil the first time, did he? Had no problem showing the bloody coat to his father the first time, did he? Something's happened. These men have been changed. They have been changed. They don't resent Benjamin receiving the five times more food. They don't abandon Benjamin to be enslaved in Egypt. They're humbling themselves on Benjamin's account before the governor of Egypt. They knew that they were in this situation because 22 years ago what they had done to Joseph. They offered themselves as slaves, unanimously as a group, and they showed genuine concern for how it would affect Jacob. Joseph had been changed. The brothers had been changed by the grace of God. So the test worked. They passed the support test, the love and support test of Benjamin. They passed the repentance test. These men are truly broken about their sin. And they're even willing to be a substitute for Benjamin. Judah is. This is the first picture in the scriptures of somebody being a substitute for somebody else. So we have the test, and now we have time to meet Joseph. I am Joseph. What's it gonna be? Reconciliation or swift judgment? Then Joseph could not control himself before all those he stood before. So picture this. Here are these men. They're all prostrate before Joseph. Judah's begging an audience and trying to plead the case for Benjamin. And this man begins to heave. And he turns away. And he gives a command in Egyptian. And everybody scatters. And then he turns. And in clear Hebrew, he says, I am Joseph. I mean, how... As a brother of Joseph, do you take that in? This man who has all power, who has run you up one side and down the other, stands before you and says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? 
I don't even think they heard the second, second question. The question. When they heard, I am Joseph, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. That word dismayed literally means terrified. As if an enemy had turned on you with their guns and was ready to obliterate you. That is what they felt. Notice they don't even talk till verse 15. Joseph has the stage all to himself to say what he needs to say. They are speechless. They are frightened. And they had every right to be. What's Joseph going to do? Isn't this an interesting situation? Joseph had every right to do whatever he wanted with his brothers. And he also had the power. There was no one more powerful on the face of this part of the earth than Joseph. He had all power. He had all knowledge of the situation. Let's see. On the question, multiple choice A. Lop their heads off right now. Number two, put them in prison. Number three, let's make them slaves for the rest of their life in the worst possible situation in Egypt. Or all of the above in reverse order. But he doesn't do that. Why does he not take revenge? Because he's been changed by God. He understood God's purpose for his life. Was what his brothers did a purely wicked thing? It absolutely was. It was awful what they did to him. Years of his life were in slavery or in prison. There's no sugarcoating what they did. That's why they were terrified. Let's not sugarcoat sin. But notice, God turned it for good. For Joseph, for Joseph's family, including his wicked brothers. And for the Egyptian kingdom, and for all the surrounding peoples, Joseph was the man that had the bread. He had the grain for all that region to keep them alive. Notice what he says in verse 5, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice who the actor is in each of these statements. And God sent, verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you my many survivors. And verse 8, he made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Who's the actor? Is it Joseph? Who's the main player here? God. God did this. In the midst of what you did to me, God worked it out for good. And notice what he says in verse 11. Therefore I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. He understood his mission. He was to be a blessing to that whole region and to provide for God's people. God, and number two, God gave him a love for his enemies and the grace to forgive them. These men were his enemies. They were treacherous men. They were dangerous men. And yet, he loved them, didn't trust them, and he forgave them. Notice what he says in verse 4. Come near to me, please. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
Notice he doesn't just forget about what they did, does he? But he says, come near. Verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, but God. But God sent me before you to preserve life. And then look at the reconciliation in verses 14 and 15. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What a beautiful picture of reconciliation. They thought life was going to get as good as it was going to get as they were leaving Egypt. They were not reconciled to God. They weren't reconciled to Jacob. They weren't reconciled to Joseph. They weren't reconciled among themselves. They just had their bags of grain and they had everybody there. Isn't that all that there is for the good life? No, there's not. There's more to the good life than just having plenty. It's being in right relationship with God and with man. And in a turn of events, within a matter of hours, God had brought reconciliation to the household of Jacob. Glory to God. Glory to God. What do we learn from this passage? First, God is good and sovereign. And he has the desire and the power to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's a lot of painful things in this life that we are going through, have gone through, or will go through. But there is a God on the throne who is good and has all power. And he is able to work those things for your good and the benefit of all of his people, for his glory. And we see that in the life of Joseph. Joseph could have been the most bitter man who ever walked the face of the earth for all that was done to him. And yet, he is the giver of life to that entire region because God did a work in his heart. What are you going through today? Or what have you gone through that you still can't get over? Let it go. Trust God that he is good and that he is in control. Trust him. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Joseph. Slave to Potiphar, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, put in prison for years, away from his father, away from his family. Life is painful. Let's not pretend it's not at times. That's why we have to hang on to the great hope that God is good and that God is sovereign. What else do we take out of this passage? Our God is inescapable. Believer, if you're a believer and you're hiding sin in your life, he will be relentless in bringing it to the surface. It may be five years, it may be 10 years, it may be 15 years, but he is fully able to bring it out into the open for all to see. Because when you bowed the knee to Christ, he committed himself to make you like himself, which is holy. And he is more committed to you being holy than you are to being holy. And he doesn't mind bringing whatever discipline he needs to make you that way. 
And if you think you can burn your boat, or you think you can tell a little lie that won't be caught, God can, if God can orchestrate the famine and place Joseph in control of Egypt, he can orchestrate situations to bring your sin to bear. So the encouragement here is, these brothers wasted 20 plus years of their life hiding, feeling guilty, fearful, all those things. One, we need to hate sin more and we need to run from it. And two, when we've committed sin, we need to run to Christ and confess and forsake it. If you want to see a dysfunctional home, look at, look at back in 42, where the father's against the sons, the sons are arguing with the dad, the sons are arguing with each other. That had been that home for 20 plus years with the loss of Joseph. Christian, whatever you're holding on to, it's not worth it. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy those around you. We've seen examples of that in this last year of people's sin being brought out for the whole world to see. You're no different than anybody else. Sin is at your elbow. Sin is crouching at your door. If you're in a situation where you've got sin you don't know how to deal with, come see one of the elders. Come see one of the men of the church who can help you. We're not here to point the finger. We're here to help you be set free. Look at the freedom we see in in chapter 45. These men are finally free to love each other to love their brother who they hated. They're set free. He's unescapable. And then, if you're here and you don't know Christ, maybe you know a lot about Christ, maybe you went to church all your life, maybe you know some things about Christ, but you don't, you're not a follower of Christ. One day we're all going to stand before the one who is the I am. Jesus. And just like Joseph, Jesus has all power and all authority. He's the one that makes provision for everyone. And he's the only one through which we can come to be saved. He is the only one Verse 16 of 44 needs to be your life verse. What shall I say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? You need to come to the place, and the only way you can do it is by God's Spirit working in you to see how sinful you are. And when you get that picture, when you get to that point, and and by God's grace you can, then to look to Jesus as the only possible help. um, Judah offered to be a pledge of safety for Benjamin. But he never was. He never made the substitute. Joseph didn't accept it. There is one greater than Joseph who has made a pledge of safety for a people who will put their eyes on him and will completely trust that he can forgive them of their sin and cleanse them and change them and make them new people in Christ. Jesus Christ has made the pledge of safety. He has made the surety. He is the one who came and lived the perfect life. He never had to cover sin because he had no sin. He walked through the life perfectly and then he let his own creation crucify him. 
that he could take your place and my place. As good as Joseph is and the provision he provided of food, there is one greater than Joseph. It is Jesus. Joseph did not shed his blood for you. He was a great organizer and he took care of the famine. Jesus shed his blood for you. Come to Christ. If you've never been broken of your sin, if you think you're a pretty good person and you don't need God, you're like the brothers. You're fooled, you're blind. We're all sinners. We're all sinners who deserve the worst that God could give. The great news is, it's just like Joseph loved his brothers, Christ loves you. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is no name under heaven given by men by which you must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no accident that you're here today. In God's world, there are no accidents. There's no chance happenings. I pray God would give you grace to take what you've heard, to acknowledge your sin, to bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And even in the hands of a man trying to explain it, your spirit can explain it better. Father, I pray that you would cause Christians to uncover their sin and run to Christ and be set free. Father, that you would cause those who don't know Christ to fall before him and become his slave for life and to be set free. Only Christ can save. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can. Lord, help us be available to those who want to talk. In Jesus' name, amen.